Session two, I've labeled death by a thousand cuts. And uh, I say that because research on multiple levels has shown that in the course of a marriage relationship, as few as five negative comments a day can lead to the disintegration of a marriage. Snide comments, little criticisms, things that people don't really appreciate, as little as five a day. And here's, here's what happens is uh, women, for example, will uh, put up with it and put up with it, and, and then eventually they get, they get tired of it, and so uh, there's a blow-up or something like that, and they're threatening to leave, and so the husband says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and, uh, and so then she's willing to give him another try, and so you, you go through that cycle a number of times, and then there's a point at which this woman hits the point of no return. And so at that point is where they wind up in my office. And, uh, and she says, I'm done, I'm through, and uh, don't care what he says. And, uh, and, then, and then, you know, he, he's working with me, and he's, you know, what, what do I need to do to, to bring this back? I'll do anything, which, by the way, is absolutely the wrong motive. If his motive is, I'll do anything to get her back, and he gets her back, what happens? I have accomplished my goal. And then he reverts. And by the way, when he reverts... That's the final nail in the coffin. And when she's gone, it never comes back. Now, as Pastor Dan mentioned, I've done a lot of marriage counseling, and I've trained a lot of pastors in marriage counseling, and, uh, and not all the marriage counseling that we do is successful. Uh, we try and we pray and we do the best we possibly can, pour ourselves into these relationships, but we can't always bring them back. And uh, so what I want to do today is I want to work through... Uh, the, uh, some loss prevention concepts to help you from ever getting to that place, even coming close to that. So we're moving into some more practical stuff here, and then the third session is going to be pretty much all practical. So number one, let's just review. This covenant is a work of grace. And let, and let me say, no marriage can survive without grace. The, the very idea of two sinful Selfish people living together in any semblance of harmony presupposes grace. This whole idea of compatibility, that is an utter complete myth. There are no compatible people. Marriage is two incompatible people living together, willing to extend grace to each other over the long haul. Uh, my wife and I discovered that when uh, children came. Uh, my wife grew up in a family where her parents didn't give a rip. There was no discipline, and, uh, and she tried like crazy to, uh, to please them, and they were never pleased. And, uh, but when she did wrong, no discipline, nothing, none. I grew up in exactly the opposite. If, I even, if the thought even formed, I got in trouble. <laughs> so you can see we're going into the marriage with kids now, I'm determined I am not going to have that kind of rigid kind of disciplinary system in my family. I had two boys, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be much more uh, understanding. I'm going to be much more gracious with them. My wife, however, had the idea, these boys are going to experience discipline. They're going to be held to rigid standards. They're not going to get away with anything. So, uh, so what happened was, I mean, we're at the opposite ends of the spectrum, and, and, and then we realize that if I raise them my way, I'm going to ruin them. And, and if Ev raises them her way, she's going to ruin them. So together, we ruined them. <laughs> uh, actually, they turned out to be pretty good boys. But the point here is uh, marriage is two incompatible people. You know, it's like, one person is a saver, the other person is a spender. One person goes to bed early at night, the other one likes to stay up late. Uh, it's just uh, the, the incompatibilities are, are legion. And then it's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5, it says, When a man is newly married, he shall not go out to the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home for one year to be, to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Which is a brilliant idea, is because the first year of marriage is this massive adjustment where two incompatible people are now trying to get adjusted to each other. They're supposed to be accommodating each other, but it's not an easy thing. And so the idea of taking the pressure off for the first year is marvelous. Now, we got married. I was a full-time pastor, and uh, 
So uh, somewhere toward the end of that first year, my wife sat down with me and she said, uh, do you know how many hours you worked last week? I said, 65. She said, 84. That's two full-time jobs plus four hours of overtime. She said, where do I fit? Where do I fit? So the idea is there needs to be a period of adjustment before, you know, and there needs to be some, some lightening of the duties and the pressure and the obligations in order to develop a basis for the rest of the relationship for the rest of your life. And of course, the model for your marriage is Christ in the church, and that model is based on the gracious initiatives extended by God, because he's the groom, and, and so here's how the groom approaches the bride. He forgives us. He reconciles us to himself. He establishes us as his bride. And then he works to purify us and to cleanse us and to beautify us. Now, what we deserve is judgment. What we get is grace. And we do the same thing for each other in marriage. What we deserve is rebuke and admonition and all that. Instead, we wallow in the grace that flows through our spouse into our relationship with each other. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband and the children who would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. And the believing spouse, it's a conduit for grace. Back to that idea of the conduit for grace. Now, grace is the lubricant that allows us to live together without tension and, and, and resentment. So uh, Evan and I, when we got married, we lived in church housing. We had a two-story uh, house that the church owned. We lived in it. And uh, the carpet uh, was the ugliest carpet you've ever seen in your entire life. It, you set out to design ugly carpet. I don't think you could have matched this. It was, it was Nobel Prize-winning ugly carpet. And so uh, as an act of grace, I uh, emptied our savings account, and I recarpeted this at our own expense church housing, but I recarpeted my, and she loved it. She was so happy with it. And uh, sometime later, I was in my office, and she called me on the phone, and she said, you've got to come home right away. And I said, well, what, what, what's wrong? And she said, you just have to come home. And so I thought, oh, great, Brian fell down the stairs, broke his head or something. I had no idea. So I rushed up the alley, and, and I went home, burst into the house, and Eva's sitting on the floor in front of the couch, holding Brian, who's a year and a half, and what, what, what? And uh, she just pointed at the floor. Well, there was the steam iron. So I said, what? Well, Brian had found it in the closet, plugged it in, and he drove it across the floor, and then he left it and went to play, and it burned all the way down to the floor. My wife was shaking with fear over how I was going to respond because that's what she grew up with, a dad who went off and, and blew a cork and, uh, and, and that, that broke me. I gathered her in my arms, and I tried to assure her that there is no carpet, there is no car, there is no house, there is nothing that would ever cause me to berate her or to be angry with her or to treat her that way. I was broken that she even felt that way. That first year needs to be a practice session where you learn how to be a conduit of grace. And then on the basis of that, let it flow for the rest of your lives until the end of your days. Now, I just wrote an devotion this last week about a guy who was married for 57 years to his, high school, to his childhood sweetheart, and she came down with Alzheimer's. And he cared for her at home as long as he could, and then eventually he couldn't care for her, so he had to put her in an Alzheimer's unit. And, and this guy left his house every morning at 8 o'clock, and he went to the Alzheimer's unit, and he got her up, and he fed her, and he took care of her. He fed her lunch and stayed with her the afternoon. He held her. He prayed with her. He talked to her, shared his love with her, and then he fed her supper. And then after she went to bed, he would go back exhausted to his house. Next morning again, he did that for five years. For five years. He was a conduit for grace into his wife. He had made a covenant with her till death do us part. And he maintained that to the end of his days. I mean, he's a saint of God. So the idea here is, uh, is grace. 
So let's talk about the basis for that grace. Colossians chapter 2, verse, uh, chapters 2 and 3 is a, is a sequence of events leading up to uh, some statements about husbands and wives and children and slaves in chapter 3. Uh, but early in that sequence, the Apostle Paul mentions the wrath of God upon unrighteousness, but he says God took those offenses out of the way by nailing them to the cross. Okay, now put yourself in there. He took my offenses out of the way by nailing them to the cross. And he took my wife's offenses out of the way by nailing them to the cross, which means God doesn't see my sins. God doesn't see my wife's sins. So how can we focus on each other's sins? It, it, it kind of goes back to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where uh, we who have specks or, or, or logs in our eye are trying to deal with the specks in somebody else's eye. Um, and by the way, you know you're going to find what you're looking for. Uh, four years ago, I bought a white Ford Edge. And uh, uh, I was amazed, because, I mean, uh, uh, one of the guys in church had one. I thought it was a pretty cool vehicle, and so I went on Craigslist and found one I bought it. And, uh, and, but the amazing thing was, I bought it, and then within a few days, there's white Ford Edges everywhere. I had never seen Ford, white Ford Edges before, but now all of a sudden there was two exactly like mine in my neighborhood. See, once you become sensitized, you're going to find what you're looking for and what you're sensitized to. And the, the same thing can happen. And, and all right, when you start focusing on the things that are wrong, you're going to find, you know, the same thing happens in church. You got a couple who's attending the church, they love the church, everything's great. And then all of a sudden they come up and say, let, let, why don't we do this? Well, we really can't do that for these reasons. And so then they get a little miffed. And then after a while, they tip to the other side, whereas before, everything was great, and because they're happy, there's grace to overcome the little niggling things, but then when you tip to the other side, things aren't great anymore, and then the little things, there's no grace. Instead, we're upset and mad, and eventually, we lose them. That happens in marriage. So instead of judgment, we extend grace. It's the, it's the Matthew 18 analogy that Jesus gave I have been forgiven a billion dollars worth of offenses against God. And my wife could never, ever do anything to me that even comes close to the magnitude of what I have done against a holy God. So God has forgiven me a billion dollars worth. Surely I can extend grace to cover my wife's hundred dollar debt. So, can we take another step in the analogy here? Not only does God forgive my sins, but he declares us righteous. Now, I'm not righteous, but he declares me righteous. And he calls us saints. I, I love the First Corinthians chapter 1, which, by the way, the Corinthian church, if you wanted everyone to see a church that had but every problem you could find in a church, they had it. And yet, in the beginning chapter, he talks to the, to the believers at Corinth, called to be, they're sanctified and called to be saints. So try to think of your spouse, who's a believer in Jesus Christ, whose sins have been nailed to the cross so that God remembers them more. Try to think of your spouse in terms of sainthood. I would love to hear Pastor Dan introducing his wife to somebody tomorrow. As, this is my wife, Saint Beth. <laughs> we'll see if it works. And then we come to that powerful declaration in chapter th Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So here's the second part of this. This covenant is a covenant of grace, and this covenant is a covenant of forgiveness. The principle is, as the Lord has forgiven me, so I must forgive. And, and what sort of things do I have to forgive? Everything that Jesus forgives, which, by the way, even extends adultery. I say, well, what about Matthew chapter 19? You know, the, the uh, exception there is if your spouse commits adultery, then you're free to kick him aside and go on. What if your spouse repents? What if your spouse asks forgiveness? What if your, your, your spouse owns it? What then? Well, Jesus said, it's because of the hardness of your heart that God permitted you to get divorced. But if your spouse sins against you, and repent. In fact, do you, know, do you know what forgiveness means? You know what forgiveness means? Forgiveness means I'm going to let it go. 
I'm not going to throw it in your face. I'm not going to hold it over your head. I'm not going to remind you of it. I'm not going to let it affect my attitude towards you anymore. You see, when God forgives us, he buries them in the depths of the deepest sea. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. He says, your sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. And then he calls us to do the same thing. So a number of years ago, I had a, a couple that came to me. Uh, he had been a pastor, an assistant pastor at a church in the area, and uh, he'd committed adultery. And so the pastor had fired him, the church kicked him out, and uh, they just, so they came crawling up the road. And, uh, and his wife was deeply wounded, and uh, she was doing everything she possibly could to hold herself together, but she really didn't want to be there. So we worked together for several months, talked through things, prayed through things, studied the scriptures, and she finally came to the place where she could genuinely and honestly forgive her husband, restored the relationship. And eventually, eventually, we brought him on our staff and restored him to pastoral ministry, and he served with us magnificently. What a trophy of grace and forgiveness. What do we have to forgive? Everything Jesus forgives. I had a, I had a, I had a, uh, I had word with all the funeral homes in town. Well, there's three of them. But anyway, I told them, I said, if you ever, if you ever need a pastor, call me. Because I love to do funerals. It gives me a chance to meet people. I ordin it's always amazing to me that people have nothing to do with God, religion, or church. When somebody dies, oh no, we need to get a preacher in here to say some things from the Bible. So I'm the guy. So I got called into one of the funeral homes and sat with his family and, uh, uh, the guy, I think his name was Harvey, he was 65, he died of a heart attack. And so I'm meeting with a family, and I said, you know, if, if I've got to do this, I need to know something about Harvey. Talk to me about Harvey. And so they mentioned a few things, and then the wife who was sitting there, she said, uh, one thing I have to say about Harvey is uh, he never did anything to, to hurt me. And the daughter, she's about 35 or so, she came off the couch, she said, Mom, how in the world can you say that? And Mom said, What? She says, well, Dad had that affair with that secretary. And she goes on. And I'm thinking, that's pretty major. So I, I look at the wife, and the wife says, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. You know how you do that? When you forgive on the basis of God's forgiveness of you. And they had a sterling marriage at that, even though he had done that. That's... That's, that's what forgiveness means. You're not going to dwell on it. You're not going to throw it in their face. You're not going to let it, you're going to let it go. You're going to forget it. Now, how, how often do I have to do this? All right. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 5 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times in a day saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the apostle said, Lord, you're going to have to increase our faith. Seven times in a day. Now, that's hyperbole. I recognize that. But you know what it means? Jesus is making a point here. He's making the point, you don't get to judge the person's heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. You did it seven times. God looks on the heart. You don't get to see the heart. So if they turn to you saying, I repent, your response as one who has been forgiven is to forgive. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, he said, if you're not going to forgive, neither will Heavenly Father forgive you. That doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It means a Christian is never so much like God as when they forgive. And the refusal to forgive is an indication of the fact that you have not been forgiven. Because there's no way we cannot forgive when we have been forgiven our billion dollars worth. So he said, well, where do my feelings fit in here? They don't. Now, that sounds harsh. But we don't operate according to our feelings. You know, most of us, if we operate according to our feelings, when the alarm goes off in the morning, we'd kick it across the room. We wouldn't get up and go to work. We don't feel like it. I don't feel like paying my taxes, but I pay my taxes. We don't live according to our feelings. So the point here is, is Jesus is making the point that if they say the words, you need to respond to the words and leave the rest up to God. And why is this so important? Well, let me give you three reasons. Number one is there is going to be conflict. In fact, Luke chapter 17, verse 1 says it is impossible, but that offenses will come. That's the King James Version. I think the ESV says stumbling block or whatever. But the idea is it's impossible, but things aren't going to happen. They're going to be irritating, upsetting, make us mad, whatever. It's impossible. Things are going to happen. 
And the only way to, uh, and, so, and by the way, the big ones, and we'll talk more about this today, the big ones are finances and child rearing and apron springs, you know, the TPT principle and control issues and communication, all those kind of things. But the point is, so th there's going to be conflict, but number two, there's no restoration without it. So, you know, you go back to Ephesians chapter 5, you know, or, or 4, and it's the idea that, you know, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You know, the idea is you, you solve today's problems today. And uh, so it, it seemed to me like whenever my wife and I had a conflict, it was on Saturday night. I don't know why. And I think she did it that way on purpose. But so I'm in my, my study at home, and I'm pouring over my sermon for, I'm not ahead of the game like Dan. I, I, I'm a last minute guy. And so I'm pouring over my message, and then this would happen, and then I can't concentrate. And so I sit there, and then finally I go creeping into the living room, heading for the bedroom, and, and I meet her creeping out of the bedroom, heading for me because neither one of us could stand the idea of this conflict being unresolved. You, you, you can't live that way. Because then a, a root of bitterness springs up. And then I, I had a couple in my office one time, weren't speaking to each other, and I said, how long has this been going on? And uh, she said, 18 years. They, had been, they hadn't been talking for 18 years. I said, well, well, they'd leave notes for each other. And they'd say, tell your mother I said, or tell your dad. 18 years. They couldn't even remember what they're mad about. They wasted their life together. It, so, so, number one, there will be conflict, but number two, there's no restoration without it. And then number three is God gets glory when two imperfect people forge a marriage in the furnace of affliction by relying on Christ. And uh, uh, I, I had, uh, some years ago, I had a guy who uh, came to me with uh, a woman, and they want to get married, uh, they're both divorced. He had, uh, he had been an angry man, and, uh, and uh, his wife had had it up to here, and so she ran off with somebody else and, uh, and divorced him. And, uh, and the woman that he had with him, she was divorced. Uh, she had control issues and uh, absolutely no tolerance for anything, and so she had driven her husband off, and he had found somebody else and shacked up and divorced. And so here they come together, and now they both become Christians, and uh, so I walked them through extensive premarital counseling. I, I had three rules. Number one is at least one has to be a member of the church of good saying. Both have to be professed believers in Jesus Christ. And number three is you have to go through extensive premarital counseling. And I don't tell them ahead of time how extensive that is. In their case, it was a solid year. And so, I mean, we went through it. And so I finally, finally uh, performed the wedding for them. And, uh, and as time went on, I spent a lot of time in their house getting calls at 11 o'clock at night, you know, and I'd go over there and, and uh, help her because she got mad. And, and so he took off in the car and she threw all of his stuff on the front lawn. And so I'd help bring the stuff back in the house and get things together. And, uh, but last summer, uh, and they moved away and I eventually lost touch with them. Last summer they came back and called me up and said, uh, we're in Grand Haven, can we stop by and see you? And so uh, Evan and I were out on the, on the deck and they came and sat down holding hands, and uh, I said, how's things going? And they were just like lovebirds. And so uh, I thought, well, that's nice. So then I contacted the kids, <laughs> and they said, oh, yeah, mom and dad are absolutely the most uh, loving, gracious, kind. They're a joy to be around. You know, the point here is grace and forgiveness can create the most un, take the most unlikely couples and make them trophies of God's grace. And then you might say, well, is there no protection for me? Aren't there some cases where forgiveness constitutes enablement? You know, for example, do I forgive abuse of my children? I got my spouse who's abusing my kids, or he assaulted me, or, you know, he comes home in a drunken rage, or drug-induced violence, and afterwards he says, I'm, I'm so sorry, but you made me do it because you were this and whatever. Where's the line? Is there no recourse for me? I tell women uh, to make two phone calls. Uh, number one phone call if there's some illegal, violent thing going on. The first, first phone call is to call the police, because Romans chapter 13 is for women who are in those kind of situations. Uh, they bear not the sword in vain. It's for the protection of women and children as well. So I tell make number one and, and file charges. And then number two is call me. 
and I'm going to unleash the pressure of the local church and, uh, and the Christian community, including Christian lawyers. Now, in a situation like that, if he thoroughly repents, owns his sin, and begs forgiveness, you're under command of God to extend it, but there's still going to be some legal consequences, and the church is also going to be involved, and we're going to hold them accountable, and we're going to unleash all of our efforts to restore that marriage as, as strong. But you're not alone. See, that's why, that's why you need to be a part of a Christian community, and there is protection. You have the government, but you also have your church. The first step in living together the way Christ relates to the church is to extend the grace of forgiveness. We forgive and we forbear. In other words, we treat them better than they deserve because that's the way God treats us. This is one of the central pieces of Christian ethics. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on you, treat, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So I tell, I tell men, I tell women, you're under obligation to, to love your wife. If you can't do that, you're under obligation to love your neighbor. If you can't do that, you're under obligation to love your enemy. There's no exceptions. So these commands, these ethical commands I just read in Luke 6, uh, these are not set aside when we get married. If we're to return good for evil in general, how much more in marriage? Uh, I don't know if any of you saw the movie or saw the book Fireproof. And uh, that it's a 40-day plan, and uh, it includes lots of returning good for evil. So the whole idea there is if she insults you, you come back with compliments. If she ignores you, you honor her. If she yells at you, you listen carefully and you respond thoughtfully. The people that I counsel don't typically do that. They respond, well, two can play that game. And uh, then they come back returning evil for evil. This, this fireproof thing is based on the fourth commandment. And that is uh, act, don't react. Um, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So the first step then is to extend the grace of forgiveness, and then the second step is to recognize that grace also provides the power and the incentive to stop sinning, that is, to change. Now, if we just emphasize forgiveness and forbearance, we might get the idea that my job in marriage is to endure the status quo with no hope for change, and that is not the case. Do I have to just deal with their annoying habits or sinful behavior? Do I just have to turn the other cheek? Do I just have to smile and overlook it for the rest of my days? Sounds harsh, and I don't think that's exactly right. Grace is not just the power to return good for evil, but it's also the power to do less evil and the power to be less bothersome. Grace. In a marriage, grace makes you want to change for the glory of Christ and for the joy of your spouse. Grace makes you want your spouse to enjoy living with you. You're supposed to rejoice with the wife of your youth. It's supposed to be an enjoyable relationship, an enjoyable context. So grace makes you want to change for the glory of Christ and for this joy of your spouse, and grace also provides the power to make it happen. And again, that was what was supposed to happen in Matthew 18. So the guy has been forgiven a billion dollars. That is supposed to fill his heart with such joy and such, such uh, gratitude that he is willing to turn and forgive everybody for everything, especially some guy who only owes $100. So when your spouse shares that something irritates him or her, they're actually extending to you a gift and how you respond sends a powerful message. So as I mentioned, uh, I got married when I was, I was 31. I had my own apartment for years, and I had a little routine going. So at the end of the day, if I was eating at home, I'd put the dishes in the sink and wash them up, and then I would take the washcloth and I'd wipe the counter and then the, wipe the table off, and I'd do a hook shot into the sink, out the door, and I'm off. Well, I got married, and uh, my wife at the time was working second shift at North Hennepin Metropolitan Medical Center. 
And uh, so she would come home at 12.30 at night, and, uh, and then, and, and because of some sinus problems going all the way back to my birth, my olfactory senses are somewhat compromised, which means I can't smell anything. But she could. And so she would come into the kitchen, and there would be that washcloth laying there festering with tomato seeds hanging off it, and it's just a wretched thing. And she endured it for months without saying anything because, you know, love covers them all to do the sins. And she just thought, I, sh I should just be able to deal with it. You know, I found out later she was taking salad tongs and picking it up and putting it in. So anyway, uh, so, so one time she finally, she's, you know, we're talking about things. And she said, could you do me a favor? And she told me about that. And I thought, well, why didn't you tell me months ago? Because I don't want to do things that irritate her. I want her to enjoy living with me. And so, uh, so I was glad she said that. That was a gift. Because I can do something to eliminate an irritant. Now imagine what would have happened the next night. She came home at 1230, walked in the kitchen, and there was a washcloth festering in the sink. You understand the message I would have sent her. I don't give a rip. And imagine what that would do to the intimacy factor in a marriage. So the idea here is uh, uh, marriage is not supposed to be a lifelong endurance contest. We're supposed to be willing to change for the glory of God and for the enjoyment of each other. Now listen to these verses in Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27, because these are the verses that take us beyond forgiveness. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church, so in the same way as Christ who loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So let's talk about husbands changing wives. Because in Ephesians 5, this passage I just read, Christ is clearly trying to transform his bride into something beautiful, and he's seeking it, at the cost of his life. So what does it mean to sanctify her? Well, the word sanctify means to set apart. Um, Peter talks about showing honor to the woman as the weaker, uh, a better translation would be a fragile. So, so put, it, put it this way. So in your living room, imagine you've got a, a fireplace with a big mantle there, and on one end of the fireplace is a a, a, a Walmart vase. It costs $4.99. At the other end of the mantle, you've got a 13th century Ming Dynasty vase. Okay, so if it's cheap, it's a vase, but if it's really expensive, it's a vase. <laughs> Why you've got a, a vase in your house, I don't know. That's it's part. So so anyway, when you're dusting, you come to the the uh, the Walmart vase, you pick it up, dust it, and slap it down. Because if it falls and breaks, who cares? But when you come to the the Ming Dynasty vase, you put the cloth down, you pick it up, you put it on the end table, you make sure that it's stable, pick up your cloth, you dust, you put the cloth down, you pick it up, and then you set it back up there, and you make sure it's stable, and then you pick up your cloth and go on. Now, Peter's point is, every woman in the world is a Walmart vase. Your wife is a 13th century Ming Dynasty vase that's priceless. Fragile and absolutely irreplaceable. That's what it means to sanctify her. That's what it means to set her apart. Cleanse her, like God did for Israel in, in, in the book of Ezekiel. He talks about, he talks about finding this, this woman who is bedraggled and dirty and naked and, and slavery. And so he rescues her and he dresses her in finery and cleans her up and puts jewels on her and installs her in his palace and treats her like a princess. Now, that's the idea of cleansing her, presenting her splendid, without spot or wrinkle. Whenever Eva discovered a new wrinkle, she always blamed me for that. And then, holy and without blemish. In other words, in other words, after living for a period of time with a husband, a wife should be better, more Christ-like than she was before. You're to have a purifying, cleansing effect on her. Back uh, in 1991 or 92, back in the days of Reader's Digest, they published the story of Johnny and his eight-cow wife. Anybody remember that story? Somebody, you do? 
All right. I should have him tell it. So, so on this South Sea Island, the, the culture there was that uh, the bride price was a cow. So when you went to uh, talk to the, the, the dad, uh, you offered a cow. Or if she was an extraordinary woman, maybe two cows. The record was three. Somebody had paid three cows for his wife. That was, that was the cultural record. Everybody was just amazed at that. So anyway, Johnny finds this woman that he wants to marry, so he and his dad go, and they talk to her dad, and uh, the dad says, uh, well, okay, you know, so let me see the cow. He says, well, Johnny says, uh, I want to give you eight cows. And the dad says, yeah, why in the world would you want to do that? I want to. Well, she's not worth eight cows. To me, she is. So he insisted. He insisted on eight cows. So they finally talked to the dad, the, the, the father-in-law into it. But, but now here's the thing. This woman was not an extraordinary beauty. She was really kind of an ordinary woman. And so nobody could figure out why. But when word got around the island that Johnny had just paid eight cows for this woman, people looked at her different. <laughs> what does he see in her? And she realizes, I have just been the recipient of the highest price ever paid gives her a sense of worth. And as the story went on, she became an extraordinary beauty because he had lit a fire in her of value beyond measure and an inner glow that caused her to become a woman of extraordinary beauty from within. You ought to be doing that for your wife is the idea here. On the other hand, when I uh, would stand up in my pulpit and preach on Sunday morning, I would look down and I would see couples. And some of these women are aging before their time, beaten down by the way they're being treated by their husbands. And instead of being sanctified and cleansed and presented splendid and without spot or wrinkle or holy and without blemish, they were beaten down. How does a husband bring about change in his wife? Let me give you some ideas here, studying the scriptures and praying with her. I can't tell you how many women have sat in my office and wept and said, if only my husband would bring some spiritual leadership to our family and to our relationship. My husband never prays with me. I never see him read the word of God. I would give anything if my husband would just pray with me. That's one way. It would encourage her. Leading her by example. Denial of self is a splendid example. And uh, so when Ev would, uh, we'd talk about, so what are you going to do for a vacation this summer? And she said, well, I'd, I'd like to go to West Virginia and spend some time with my family, which was somewhere near the bottom of my list of places to go on vacation. It was actually below the bottom because <laughs> they were not believers. They were not nice. I, in fact, I will say, and we lived in Minneapolis at the time, we would, we would drive a thousand miles out there to spend a week and on the third day, she would say, put the kids in the car, we're getting out of here. I mean, she couldn't even take it. So when she would say, I want to go to West Virginia, and I want to go camping, or I want to go anywhere but there, you know, Grace says, I defer. You defer. And you give her a sense of honor and dignity and respect when you do that. Um, that's a powerful example. And then uh, number three is providing what is necessary for her to grow and change and develop and prosper. In verse 29, it says a husband is supposed to nourish and cherish. What does it mean to nourish your wife? You know what that means? That means you're providing for her what is necessary so that she can grow and develop. You know, there's some guys whose wife have, have latent artistic abilities or musical abilities or writing abilities or home decorating abilities or whatever. And when the husband, and, and when she wants to take a class or she wants to take a seminar or she wants to invest and, and do these things, a, a husband who wants to nourish his wife wants to allow her to flower and to, to have the joy of, 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 of using her abilities or God-given gifts. And so he does everything he possibly can to help her to develop and to use those gifts. That's nourishing, providing what is necessary for her to grow and to expand and develop and become more than she could be without you. And then don't, don't dismiss the love languages. You know, Gary Smalley, you know, he's more of a psychologist than a Bible scholar, but he came up with these, these love languages, uh, expressing some people... Exp exp uh, love is expressed in, di in different ways. You know, there's, there's words, physical affection, acts, gifts, time, 
And, uh, and don't dismiss those things. I, when we were, I was driving down West Broadway one time listening to the radio, and some guy was talking on the radio about, uh, about uh, the, the value of, uh, of impulsive gifts and surprises. And so I thought, well, that's a good idea. So I pulled into a, into a flower shop, and I bought uh, some flowers and a box of Belgian chocolate. My wife loves Belgian chocolate, so I bought flowers and Belgian chocolates. And, and I went home. I was having, I, I think, but I, I made a detour. I went home, rang the doorbell. My wife came to the door, opened it a crack. She, her face is covered with this green mask. <laughs> and uh, she opened the door, and she said, what do you want? And I said, I, said, I, I brought you something. And, and, and so she slammed the door. So I had to go around to the back door. I snuck in. And, uh, and so, you know, she, she's not expecting this, and she's embarrassed because she looks terrible and all that. But then that evening, that evening uh, when we were talking, she said, Wayne, you know, we don't have a lot of money. The flowers are going to be dead in three days. The chocolate's going to be gone. That doesn't do it. <laughs> okay. What does do it? She said, I just want to spend time, which is, as I mentioned before, was exactly what I wasn't giving her. Just time. And in fact, even, even on occasion when we would have like a Tuesday evening free, uh, and she'd be looking for it. I didn't know this, but she'd be looking for it. Just the two of us have the evening together, and I'd say, why don't we have some people over? Well, why can't we just be together? It was time. So, um, and what about wives? Can they change their husbands? See, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. Their husband isn't the Lord, and, uh, but they're supposed to treat him with the same deference and respect as they would to the Lord. But since the husband is not Christ, he is not supreme, and he's not infallible. So uh, is she voiceless? Is she powerless? Is she helpless? Does she stand by and watch himself destruct? No, let me suggest three things. Number one is prayer. Bring him before the Lord. And, and, and here's one thing that, that I'm constantly working with, and that is these, these young women, they, they decide they want to marry this guy, and they know that he is a walking disaster, but he is cute, and I can change him. No, you can't. He can't even change himself. Only God can do that. God is in the business of changing lives. But you can't change him. And uh, so, uh, on the other hand, uh, many women have seen God transform their husbands after patiently praying for them. In fact, back in Michigan, I've got a whole church full of them. Guys that you would not want to spend time with. But now they're deacons. And Sunday school teachers and Awana workers and saints of God because their wives faithfully prayed for them. And then, then number two is, is confrontation by way of appeal. You know, she will from time to time, she'll follow Galatians 6.1. If anybody's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. She'll do that for him. She'll make the appeal. My wife saved my neck on that many times because... Uh, uh, there are times when, uh, when I'd be furious with uh, some boneheaded things my boys did, and, uh, and, and my wife would say, can we talk? And then, okay, we'd go talk, and then she'd calm me down, and so we'd handle it in a much better way than I would ordinarily. Um, and not only Galatians 6.1, but there's other passages, like Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. For example, both of them, a spiritual husband and a spiritual wife will obey Matthew 18:15. Also, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. It's loving confrontation, which is for the good uh, of the other. So, you know, for a woman, when her husband is walking out the door to go to uh, uh, a deacon's meeting or going to a, a business seminar and he's dressed like Clash Day, uh, what do you say? And how do you say it? Let me just, here's an aside. Let me give you five questions you ask yourself before you confront something. This is for husbands and wives. Before you bring up an issue and you confront something, you ask yourself five questions. And, and one of them is, what, what's my motive in doing this? You know, am I bringing this up because I'm angry, I want a pound of flesh, or revenge, or whatever? Uh, or am I bringing this up in order to help? Uh, so number one is, what was my motive? Number two is, is are my words loving? Because... You want to use words that are going to win his attention or her attention rather than drive her away and make her defensive. And so, you know, words like idiot and stupid, you're probably not going to use those words. And number three is, do I have all the facts? Because I can't tell you how many times I get people in my office, 
and, and they're, they're, they're mad at each other because somebody accused the other of something because they put two and two together and came up somehow with seven. They didn't have the facts, made assumptions. I can't tell you how many marital arguments and discord occurs because of assumptions that they make. So are my motives biblical and right? Are my words loving? Do I have the facts? Have I prayed about this? Brought the Lord into this? Submitted my spirit to the Lord? And then the fifth question you ask yourself, is this a good time? Because you want to have the kind of a time when you can actually come to a resolution rather than as somebody's trying to walk out the door or whatever. And then number three is uh, conduct versus nagging. We talked about this earlier. What if your husband isn't a believer? Well, then uh, we talked about 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 2. So then, um, evidences of grace and forgiveness. And we're going to start in this, and then I'm going to roll this into the next session here because uh, I don't want to get past this. But this is, this is where the, the thousand cuts begin to come into play. Evidences of grace and forgiveness in marriage start with gratefulness. Now the problem is, we all tend to be at least moderately self-centered, which means, number one, we fail to accept our spouses for what they are. We fail to rejoice in their strengths and their good qualities, and instead we have a tendency to focus on the ways in which they're not meeting our needs and they're not making us deliriously happy. And as I mentioned earlier, our, our expectations of one another are never realistic. When it's all about me, there's nobody who can meet those needs. And so we fail to accept our spouses for what they are. And then number two is we compare them to others. And the Apostle Paul says it's never wise to compare with others because when you do, you're always comparing yourself with people that are failing so you look good. Or in the case of comparing your spouse to somebody else, you're, con- you're, you're comparing them for the purposes of ammunition. You know, you're not doing it like so-and-so would do it. And then number three is we cross the line. When we focus on the negative long enough, there comes a time when we can see nothing else. You remember, anybody remember Spiro Agnew, who was vice president of Nixon? He was complaining about the, the journalists, the journalists, and he called them nattering nabobs of negativism. And uh, there are more than a few counselees that I would use that phrase with. For example, uh, my wife, in uh, almost 38 years of marriage, never did figure out how to load the dishwasher correctly. And, uh, but I learned never to say anything. Uh, and, then, and then capital B here is, is what does the Bible say? Because Ephesians 5, 20 and 21 says, giving thanks. Listen to this. By the way, uh, the verse before that is talking about be filled with the Spirit of God. Okay, how do you be filled? Here, here's, here's how you know you're filled with the Spirit of God, is, is when you're thankful and you're singing joyfully in your heart and you're submitting to one another. That's, that's the, the evidence that you are filled with the Spirit of God. So, and, and here's one. It says, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves to one. Giving thanks always for all things. And by the way, you notice how giving thanks and submitting are mentioned in the same breath. Giving thanks and submission are both the antithesis of pride. And we are all proud people. And so the antithesis of that, the suppression of that, is when we deliberately give thanks and we submit to one another. Now, Ephesians 5.33 says that the wife is supposed to reverence her husband. First Peter 3.7 says husbands are supposed to honor their wives. And being thankful is basic to all this. Now, one couple came in and they were poised for a divorce. And uh, so I asked them each to make a list of 25 things that they were thankful for or appreciated or admired about the spouse. They said, we're not doing that. We're not playing those kind of games. I said, I'm not playing any games either. And if you don't do this, I'm going to the church in, in church discipline. So a week later, they came back with their list. And uh, they were smiling. And they were saying, I had no idea you felt that way. I didn't know you noticed. You know, you know what the, 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 the solution for depression is? It's the same thing. Start making a list of things that are going right in your life. Because when you start focusing on all the things that are going wrong, it becomes a cycle and it drives you deep. And uh, I, had, I had a lady last year who was clinically depressed. And uh, so among other things, I said, do me a favor and come back. Give me a list of 25 things you're thankful for in your life. And she said, I'll tell you right now, I can't do that. I said, sure you can. She said, three. I can maybe come up with three. And I said, well, just, I want 25. Don't come back unless you have 25. She says, well, I probably won't see you again. She came back with 60. Because once you start looking in the right direction, 
You find all kinds of things. It's where your focus is. And so in marriage, we focus on the good things, the strong things, the, the, the virtuous things. The, 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 and, and when you look for that, it increases your esteem and your appreciation and your value for the other person. So, capital C, how do we turn the corner? Express thankfulness, like for meals. You know, uh, I, asked, uh, I asked one guy, I said, when's the last time? I, I said, so uh, you guys eat out a lot? No, no, yeah, my wife cooks, we eat at home. I said, when's the last time you, you told your wife, thanks for the good meal you made? Uh, he couldn't think. You know, I think every meal a wife makes should be a cause for Thanksgiving. And uh, for, for good talks and, and write notes and phone home and flowers and, and massages and all these things. Um, I, you know, this house I was talking about that we were in a parsonage when I was at 4th, um, I, I killed myself painting and, and wallpapering the entire lower level of the house. And, uh, and this is not my thing, but I did this. And uh, so when we got done, uh, I went to work the next day, and I came home in the evening, and she had hauled the butcher block kitchen table into the living room, and uh, she had uh, set a white tablecloth and dishes and, and the best dishes, and she had candles and music playing. And I said, well, it's not Valentine's Day. It's not our anniversary. What is this? And she said, I just wanted to thank you for what you did to our house. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul didn't take anybody for granted. You look at the end of at the book of Romans, I think it's chapter 15, 16, he gives a long list of dozens and dozens of people that were precious to him, and he thanked them for their involvement and their support in the ministry. In Philippians, uh, Philemon, verses 4 and 5 is a case in point. He said, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And then I'm just going to do this, and then we're done. Think positively. You know, she might be a terrible cook, but she's an awesome decorator. Or she might be a disorganized housekeeper, but she's a wonderful mother. Or he might be all thumbs when it comes to household repairs, but he plays with the kids and pays attention to the kids. And he might be as tight as wallpaper with finances, but you're not in debt. There's money in the bank and makes you feel pretty secure at times. So it's looking for the good qualities, complimenting them on their good qualities, thanking God for their good qualities, and stop feeling sorry for yourself because they're not the perfect spouse. Because if they were the perfect spouse, they wouldn't have married you. <laughs> All right, you're dismissed, and we pick up again in 10 minutes.